Well, we are in week three of our series as we're going through the story of Moses. And this morning is probably maybe the most famous uh, part of Moses' story. This is the showdown in Egypt between Moses and Pharaoh. And it's such a significant story that the book of Exodus takes nine chapters, chapters 4 through 12, to work through it. And we're going to go through all of it. And I know, how, I know a great way for preachers to make a room nervous is to say that we're going to cover nine chapters of the Bible this morning. But we're going to get through this together, and we're going to learn some good things. You know, as memorable as this scene is, as memorable as this story is, you know, the Nile River all of a sudden turning into blood, frogs and gnats and flies everywhere, serpents swallowing other serpents. I mean, these incredible scenes. It's important for us to not miss the forest for the trees because this is not a story about frogs or snakes uh, or boils or hail. This is a story about freedom. The people, the Hebrew people have been enslaved by the empire of Egypt for 400 years at this point. The people that God hand-chose, hand-selected, have been enslaved for 400 years, and these nine chapters unpack how they get free. And In fact, for the rest of the Old Testament, the way that God most frequently refers to himself is, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This becomes a defining moment in God's redemptive plan. And really, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, this is the moment that the Israelites were told to remember and to look back to and to actually practice a ceremonial religious feast to remember the significance of what happens in Exodus chapters 4 through 12. Freedom. This is a story about freedom. The truth is, thousands of years later, here we are, and we we still need freedom, don't we? Freedom on so many levels. Some of us need freedom from our past. Some of us need freedom from habits that are holding us back. Some of us need freedom from sin in our lives. Some of us need freedom from uh, just ourselves, our anxieties, our worries, our fears, our lust, our, our anger. Whatever it is, we, we need freedom. And I think we're going to see something this morning in the way in which God sets his people free from Egypt. There's some similarities in how he wants to set you and me free. How many of us would love to live free, to live free? And we're going to talk about that this morning. So, Moses, 40 years ago, he left Egypt, he ran away. Last week, Pastor Jeremiah preached a powerful message on the burning bush encounter. And so now Moses is headed back to Egypt. It's been 40 years, and he walks up to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh looks at him like, who are you? And Pharaoh says, not only am I not going to let your people go, I'm going to make life worse for them. And so the Hebrew people who are um, enslaved to essentially make bricks for Pharaoh's building projects, he says, now you're going to make bricks without straw. It's going to make your work incredibly harder. And so the Hebrews at first, not only are they um, not sure that Moses can deliver them, they're actually kind of upset with him. Moses, things were bad, but now they're worse. Thanks for nothing, right? And now in Exodus 7, we're going to see that the Lord comes to Moses again and says, you need to go back to Pharaoh. And I want us to read these verses together, and this is really going to be the outline for how we look at these nine chapters. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 7, it says that the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And in this verse, there's five things that God says that I want us to work through together. And the first thing is this. God said to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What does that mean? I have made you like God to Pharaoh. God was going to anoint Moses to accomplish his purposes and plans. God, as he always does, was going to use a human to accomplish divine activity. But it's more than that because in the Hebrew, the word like isn't there. In the original language, all God said to Moses was, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh believed that he was a God. He was the son of the sun God, Ra, or Re. But by the end of the 10 plagues, the people of Egypt and Pharaoh, they thought Moses was a God. Let me explain. A man named Peter N. says it this way. In Egyptian royal ideology, the Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being, not just a ruler, but a divine being. So by calling Moses God, Yahweh is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It is not the king of Egypt who is God. Rather, it is this shepherd and leader of slaves who is, quote-unquote, God. And this Moses God defeats Pharaoh in a manner that leaves no doubt as to the true nature and source of his power. He controls the elements, bugs, livestock, fire from heaven, and the water of the sea. He even has authority over life and death. Moses is not simply like God to Pharaoh. He truly is God to Pharaoh in that God is acting through Moses. So what happens next, these 10 plagues? Like, how do we make sense of what God does next? It's not God just blowing off some steam. He's not the dad on the eighth hour of the road trip as the kids have been fighting in the back seat, just, just finally turning around and going, knock it off, right? God's not just blowing off steam. He's not showing off. He's not flexing. He's not looking, look at what I can do. Look what I can make frogs do. Look what I can do to your skin. He's not punishing the Egyptians. What he's doing is he's proving he's God to a people who worshiped many gods. And he does it how? Through the person of Moses. And this is the only way that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt would understand that Yahweh was the one true God. Moses, of course, was not God. He's a stammering, stuttering, fearful human like you and me. But to Pharaoh, for these next nine chapters, he becomes like God. What I think is interesting about this is that one of the most important gifts that God faithfully gives his children are reminders that we are not him. It's one of the best gifts that God gives us. He reminds us regularly, you are not me. Now, the way that these reminders come to us, we wouldn't always choose them, right? The reminders sometimes come as frustrations that we can't uh, get around or limitations that we can't work our way past or situations that we can't control, right? Frustrations and limitations and situations. And we might even say these things plague us. They're like a plague to our lives. And we might even fight against them. But what if God is using those struggles and those seasons to save you and me from becoming little pharaohs, trusting in ourselves more than we trust in God? 
The second statement in this passage that I find interesting is this. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we could spend weeks just talking about this passage because this is a passage that is of great confusion and discussion and debate to many people. And it comes up multiple times throughout the rest of Scripture, including in some of Paul's writings in Romans. What is happening here? Even though Moses is going to do all these amazing signs and wonders, Pharaoh will not listen. We're going to see that there are times where Pharaoh says, all right, you guys can go, but then he changes his mind. Or he says, you can go, but only the men, not the women and the children. So he's always negotiating, trying to negotiate with a God that you can't negotiate with. And what, here's what happens. Three times in these nine chapters, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. All right, three times. Six times it says God did harden Pharaoh's heart. But seven times, all it says was his heart was hardened. And then three times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And if you're a student of Scripture, you're reading this going, well, which is it? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God? Was it situations of life? Or was it himself? And in many ways, the best answer is yes. It was all of that. And what we find here, and we don't have the time to dive fully into this, is the tension between what is known as the sovereignty of God and the free will of human beings. That God is sovereign, he can harden and soften the hearts of those that he chooses to harden and soften their hearts, and yet in no way does that let us off the hook of our personal responsibility. We hold these two things in tensions, and entire denominations are divided over this exact conversation, and yet I'm not sure that we actually have to make a choice here. I think we can embrace the truth that God is fully sovereign, yet we are responsible. His sovereignty in no way lets us off the hook for the choices that we make. We bear the weight and the responsibility of the choices that we make. However, God is always at work in the choices that we make to accomplish his purposes, which means that he can and does use the hardest of hearts in his plan of redemption. So what does this mean for us this morning? Well, some of you, you may feel like you're surrounded by people with hard hearts. You have family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors that you've been praying for, you've been trying to share your faith with, and all you can see within them is a hard heart. Well, God could still be at work there, couldn't he? His plans and his purposes are not derailed by a hard heart. Don't lose hope. But also, others of you may read this and feel like this is about you, that you, your biggest problem is your own heart, that your own heart is hard. Well, don't lose hope because God is sovereign. He can soften our hearts. If he, can, if he can rescue a man like Saul in the New Testament, who is a persecutor and an executor of the Christian movement, then he can reach any of us. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. The third statement that I want us to look at is this. He says, I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will lay my hand on Egypt. Now, yesterday, my family and I went to Seabreeze and some extended family and friends were there. And it, we had a great day. It was a be- wasn't a beautiful day yesterday. I think today is going to be just like yesterday. And uh, as we were driving home, we were talking about uh, some of the things we observed. And um, I heard some remarkable threats <laughs> from parents to children <laughs> yesterday. I mean, just remarkably um, somewhat concerning threats if they followed through on them from parents to, uh, to children. And it sort of sounded like this, I will lay my hand on you. <laughs> When the Lord says, I will lay my hand on Egypt, that really should strike fear into the heart of Egypt. You know, if God's going to lay his hand on Egypt, then what happens next should not surprise us. And the showdown begins. 
And it begins like this. Moses and Aaron walk into the place that Pharaoh is, and again they say, hey, let my people go, speaking on behalf of God. And Pharaoh says, prove it. Do a miracle. And so what happens is this, he, uh, he throws the staff down on the ground, and what happens? The staff turns into a serpent. Now, serpent worship was very strong in the Nile Delta, where the Hebrews were enslaved. There, the, uh, the Egyptians built a temple, and the Hebrews probably were used to build this temple, in honor of a snake goddess named Wajet. In fact, Pharaoh's ceremonial headdress was crested with a fierce female cobra right at the top. And when Pharaoh first ascended to the throne of Egypt, he would take the royal crown, and the first thing he would cry out is, O great one, O O magician, O fiery snake. So the serpent was huge in Egyptian worship and Egyptian faith. And so when Aaron throws that staff to the ground and the staff turns into a serpent, here's what Aaron's doing. Everyone in the room knew it. Aaron was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the dust. This was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. It was an attack on the entire belief system of Egypt. To draw a modern comparison, one commentator said this, it would be like taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office and wringing its neck. When God confronts other gods, he does not probe around hoping to find a weakness. Instead, he takes aim at the enemy's greatest strength and he overwhelms it with superior force. In this case, he sent Moses and Aaron straight to Pharaoh's command center where he proceeded to claim ultimate authority over all of Egypt by making a serpent crawl in the dust in front of Pharaoh. Now, if you know this story, Pharaoh's magicians then do the exact same thing. Pharaoh's like, oh, neat trick. He calls his magicians out. They throw what seems to be a staff to the ground, and it turns into a snake. Now, how did that happen? Some people say, well, there there was a trick where if you were to grab a serpent in a certain place and have a specific hold, it would paralyze the serpent, and then you throw it on the ground, and it would be free. And then other people believe, well, these are evil people who have access to evil spirits, and maybe they actually were doing something that was being done through an evil power. But regardless of why, what happens next is most important. The staff that Aaron threw down that turns into a snake swallows the other snakes. It's actually the same word that will be used later when the Red Sea swallows up the Egyptians. And this is what it means. Back then, for one god or one thing to swallow another thing was to take its power from it. You know, when I swallow a cheeseburger and fries and a milkshake, I take its power in the form of calories, and then I got to figure out how to get that power out of me. When this happened, it was like this moment where God was saying, I'm going to take all of your power from you. You know what I love? I was thinking about this verse in Isaiah 25, 8. It says that someday God will swallow death. (laughs) He's going to take the power of death away from it. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. And this brings us to the 10 plagues. And a man named James Boyce explains the significance of these plagues by saying, uh, we need to understand that these were directed not against the people of Egypt necessarily, although they suffered, but against the gods and goddesses of Egypt. They were intended to show the superiority of God, the God of Israel, to all of these Egyptian gods. There are about 80 major deities in the Egyptian religion, all clustered around uh, the river, the land, and the sky. Now, if you think about that, and then you think about the 10 plagues, you can see what God is doing. The river, the land, and the sky. So I want to look at each plague quickly here. The first one, water in the Nile is turned into blood. This is actually duplicated on some level by the Egyptian magicians. The Egyptians used the Nile River for almost everything. Without it, their land 
land would have been a desert. This river was their lifeblood. It was the basis of their entire civilization. There were at least three Egyptian gods that were associated with the Nile. Osiris, Nu, and the most important one's name was Hapi. Hapi, the god of the flood, the giver of life, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. You can see how these gods are a direct affront to Yahweh, the one who actually is the giver of life, the one who actually does cause the land to live through his provisions. So Moses strikes the Nile with his staff, and the blood flows through the Nile River, even filling the pitchers of water in people's homes. In this way, God is demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt and punishing, punishing the Egyptians for their idolatry. With one single blow, God gives them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. And he did it by turning the river into blood, making the object of their worship a thing of horror. Which, by the way, is what God still wants to do. He wants to turn the things that we worship into objects of horror when we see how useless and fruitless they are in our lives. Second, the second plague is, is the frogs, which was also duplicated by the Egyptian magicians. There was a goddess named Hecht who had the head and body of a frog. This frog the frog in Egypt was sacred. Uh, it could not, listen to this, in Egypt at this time, the frog could not be killed. So consequently... When every home was filled with frogs, there was nothing they could do about it. They couldn't kill them. They were forced to loathe the symbols of their depraved worship. And when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countryside into a stinking horror. And after the frogs, it's the first time that Pharaoh says, you can go, but he changes his mind. The third one is the gnats. Now, at this point, the magicians of Egypt can no longer duplicate from this point forward. The gnats, the sending of the gnats was intended to humiliate the earth god named Jeb. By turning the dust into bugs, God was claiming authority over the very soil of Egypt and victory over the god of the ground. He's, what God is doing here is defeating each of their gods one at a time. It's like a video game where you beat a boss at one level and then a boss at the next level. This is what God is doing. The fourth one is the flies. And from this point forward, by the way, the plagues only affect Egypt. They no longer affect the people of Israel. And the fly here, again, it's a manifestation of a very specific God who was a protector and a guardian. Actually, there was one God named Beelzebub who was supposed to guard the Egyptians against flies. And when all these flies come, again, the Egyptians are saying that their gods cannot save them, cannot protect them. This is the second time Pharaoh says, you can go, but then he changes his mind. The fifth plague is the livestock begin to die. And now there's major economic repercussions. This is the first of the plagues to bring death. It's the first of the plagues to destroy Pharaoh's personal property. Many of Egypt's gods and goddesses were depicted as livestock. The bull was a fertility figure. Things are escalating now. The gnats in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 19, it says that the gnats were sent by the finger of God, but in chapter 9, verse 3, it says that this plague was sent by the hand of God. Things are escalating. The sixth one is the boils. This is the first time it begins to actually affect the body of the Egyptians. We don't know the exact nature of this. It doesn't sound wonderful. It's an extremely unpleasant skin disease, inflamed areas of skin, festering boils that broke out into blistering sores. And here, God is showing that he has power over their bodies, even over the bodies of Pharaoh and the magicians. And actually, one interesting insight into the culture is that when, when God told Aaron and Moses to throw the dust into the air and that the dust would become these, these boils upon their body, there was, a, there was a specific ceremony that Pharaoh's priests would do where they would scatter ashes into the air, and it was a sign of blessing. 
So God is taking their ritual act and turning it into a curse. These priests and magicians who valued purity couldn't even carry out their normal priestly duties while they're covered in boils. So this is an attack on all the gods in Egypt that they trusted in for health and for healing. The seventh plague was the sending of hail. And Moses gave Pharaoh a warning, shelter your animals, but Pharaoh would not heed the warning. And this is the first time, this is the first plague where we see some of Pharaoh's staff, some of the people around him beginning to waver. Because some of, some of them do take Moses' warning. And some of them do put their livestock away. So instead of trusting in Shu, the god of the atmosphere, Nut, the sky goddess, Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, or Seth, the god of wind and storm, they take the warning of Yahweh and they bring their slaves and their livestock into their houses. The eighth plague is locusts. And, and at this point, it's a total devastation of the land. Locusts come and they begin to destroy everything. There was many Egyptian gods, I'm not going to read all their names to you, who were supposed to protect the, co- the crops and guard the fields and give them protection against pests, and yet they're defeated here. The ninth plague is the plague of total darkness. Now this is such a spiritual attack on the Egyptians because the primary god in the Egyptians' religious faith was the god of the sun. Egyptians worshipped the sun. They had a sun god that they worshipped for the sunrise. They had a sun god that they worshipped for the high noon sun. And they had a sun god that they worshipped for the sunset. But the supreme deity was Amon Re or Ra. This was the god that Pharaoh was supposed to be the son of. See, this plague is not one of physical pain or misery or loss. This is spiritual significance. And even after the ninth plague, look at the arrogance of Pharaoh. He still thinks that he rules over one thing. Life and death. Because he says, on the day you see my face, Moses, you shall surely die. Which brings us to the tenth and worst plague, the angel of death, the death of the firstborn. A terrible loss, especially for a society that so overvalued sons, especially the eldest son. And we get to this plague, and I don't know how you feel, but you begin to go, oh man, this is, this is a little hard, right? The death of the firstborn son in every home in Egypt And while I'm not trying to make this more palatable, one of the things that we have to think of when we think of the justice of God is this. How many Hebrew baby boys were killed at the hand of Pharaoh who ordered the murder of every Hebrew baby boy who was born? So this is not about you slap me, I'm going to slap you. But I want you to see that God's justice is at work even in this. God is saying to the Egyptians, here's my point, turn from your idols. And the only way that he can make this case is by defeating them. That's what the 10 plagues is about. It's not God angry. It's not God trying to show off. It's not God just trying to punish the Egyptians. It's actually God trying to show to the people of Egypt, I am the true God. And every other God that you serve cannot save you. And this is exactly, listen, this morning, this is exactly what God wants to do for you and me still. He wants to say, you know, the gods that we love, and we don't worship gods of, you know, we don't worship the gods the way that the Egyptians did, but we still worship things like power and approval, control, success, money, pleasure. God wants to show us the worthlessness of those things. Those things have no more power to save you than these false gods had to save the people of Egypt. The fourth statement here is this God says, I will bring my people out of this land. This is the Passover. This happens right before the 10th plague. Moses calls all the elders of Israel together and tells them each, go get a lamb, sacrifice and kill the lamb, takes the blood of the lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, 
put it in the blood, and then touch the lintel and the two doorposts of your home so that the Lord will pass through when he passes through tonight to strike the Egyptians and he sees the blood on your doorpost. It says this, the Lord will pass over your door and not allow the destroyer or the angel of death to enter your house and strike you. And then he says to them, observe this ritual forever. And then look at this in Exodus 12, verse 26. He says, in the future, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? When the Israelites would celebrate the Passover annually and the Egyptians and the children would say, why do we do this? What is the meaning of all this? The Lord said, you shall say this. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the angel of death came through, and the firstborn of every Egyptian household died. And Pharaoh calls Moses and begs them to leave and asks them for a blessing, and gives them wealth and resources as they go. See, what I want us to see here with this fourth one, I'm gonna have the band come up and join me, is that God did what he promised he would do. He said, I will bring my people out of Egypt, and God did it. Now, why did he do it this way? This is how I want us to end this morning. Why all the drama? Why the plagues? Why the suffering? We've kind of been talking about this all morning, but it brings us to the fifth phrase that I want us to see from the passage that we read earlier. It simply says this, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I want you to see the heart of our God here. He's not just concerned with Israel, although he is. He wants to get them out of bondage and he wants to get them free. But he also has a heart for the Egyptians here. He wants them to know that he is the Lord. He could have done this way quicker right? Way easier. Forget the 10 plagues. One big boom. Get the, he, could have, he could have magically transported all couple millions of the, of the Hebrew people right out. He could have done it so many ways, but he chose to do it this way. And the reason why he chose it to do it this way is because he wanted the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. And when we get to the end of this story in Exodus 12, verses 37 and 38, I want you to see what it says. As the, as the people of Israel begin to exodus out of Egypt, it says, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Just 600,000 men. That's why we think there's probably a couple million here. And look at verse 38. It says, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. What does that phrase, a mixed multitude, also mean? It simply means this. Some of the Egyptians went too. Some of the Egyptians left. Even through this display of power and strength, God is showing his heart for the nations. That it wasn't just Israel that was gonna get out of there, but that he actually was gonna cause the Egyptians to know there's one true God. Whatever God is doing, it's, he's always doing it so that people will know he is the Lord. And many years later, this is why God sent his son Jesus to die, so that you and I would know that he is Lord, that we don't have to no longer sacrifice lambs, that the, the story of scripture is not about selecting a lamb from the deserts of Egypt to sacrifice, but it's about the lamb of God who was chosen from the foundations of the earth to be sacrificed in our place. That's what the Passover celebration means. For many years, it meant look back to the Exodus. And while we can still learn so much about this, now when we gather around communion, we're not looking necessarily all the way back to the Exodus. We're looking back to the cross. And we're thankful. The shed blood of Jesus applied to, so to speak, the doors of our hearts allows the judgment that we deserve to, be, to pass over us so that we might have the grace of God. This is what this story is about. 
It's freedom, spiritual freedom. It meant freedom for the Hebrews then. It means freedom for us here and now. Let's pray together this morning.